We are live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm here with my co-host, my partner uh, in all things law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? I'm excited about this guest we have and not, you know, a, the topic is amazing because it's been 20 years, but uh, I'll let you introduce him. I'm excited. Well, you, yeah, you mentioned um, 20 years, 20, 9-11, uh, the anniversary of 9-11 is, uh, is 20, it's, it's going to be 20 years this year. And we have, um, we have the perfect guest for that. He's a retired NYPD inspector. He did 32 years on the job. He played on the NYPD football team and he's an, he's an author now. Um, he's got a book on 9-11, also uh, another book called Bronx Justice, an NYPD novel. Let's welcome um, Bob Martin. How are you? I'm doing very good, Mark. And you're right. Bill is a very handsome man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We always put up pictures of him. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, if you know, if you pay close attention, you could see his face. Go, uh, he's on the on the side of buses. <laughs> I'm really? not even kidding. Yeah, he had an ad for uh, what was that Monroe College? <laughs> uh, back in or, the day, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, let me tell you something. It was a good picture. Good for you. <laughs> that was a good picture. I, I, I you can't. Be, <laughs> I would pay money to have my, my face on the side of the bus like that, <laughs> going all over the city. Yeah, good for you, Bill. You know, guys, just to get uh, the audience sort of oriented um, to what we're going to show, I, ju I just want to show a quick, um, we'll share this quick video, and it gives you an idea of the chaos and everything that was happening on that day of 9-11, uh, of, of and I'm gonna, we'll share it with our audience, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it right now. Oh, 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 oh,
Wow, it gives us the chills, you know, to just to watch that and just uh, to remember that. And uh, anyone that was there can just testify to that. It's just horrendous, you know. You know, when I observed Bill in that too, it, it's you're a couple of blocks away from the towers, where, you know, when that was being filmed. And the guy holding the deli door open and it's perfectly clear day. And then boom, it's nighttime when that cloud comes down the street. You know, it's just, and that, can you imagine if you were right at the base of the towers, as some of our people were? Right. I mean, I mean, just a, a scary thing. I, I, I feel like that little uh, nervousness in my stomach right now, just, just yeah. watching that, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Bob, I want you, since, you know, you obviously, this is your book, 9-11 Remembered, 20 years later, uh, Bob Martin, and it's also dedicated to the 3256 Foundation. Every penny made, uh, all the profits from this book are being donated to the 3256 Foundation, which happens to be the shield number of Sergeant Michael Curtin. And it's it's an amazing thing that you did. I'm just going to put Michael Curtin's picture up on the screen. Uh, you want to just talk a little bit about Michael Curtin, uh, Bob? Yeah, let me start, if I could, Bill, with, with the cover. Um, I was sure. able, again, uh, Commissioner Bratton, who was nice enough to give me a cover blurb on my first book, Bronx Justice. Uh, I 
contacted him about this. And he gave me a wonderful, they call it a cover blurb. Um, and let me see if I could read it. It's actually a quote within a quote. And Bill Bratton says, in 9-11 remembered, I am reminded of a favorite quotation. And now here's the, the quotation he likes. And I believe it's from Admiral Bull Halsey from World War II. And he says, there are no great men, only ordinary men who, in response to extraordinary challenges, do great things, end of quote. Then Bratton starts again on 9-11 and the days that followed, thousands of men and women, heroes all, did great things, Bill Bratton former New York City Police Commissioner. So I am forever grateful for him. I thought the quote was right on the line. He's got a great book out now too for your, your followers. It's called The Profession, uh, where he basically details his career in law enforcement. And to me, he's the kind of premier law enforcement expert. Uh, I, I went through 12 commissioners in 32 years and I would give him uh, my nod as the best now. Uh, wow. You know, I, I do have to say, what's that they say about putting all the facts on the table? He did promote me to deputy inspector in 1995. <laughs> so, you, so you have an axe to grind then. <laughs> I, I guess. But, I mean, he didn't know me all that well. And there's a guy named Greg Longworth, who you might know, was, was a lieutenant. And actually another guy. It's funny, all of the connections I have from the NYPD football team. which He's, uh, a, he's an attorney now, Greg. I know he's him. He's a PDN attorney now. He's yeah, a PDN yeah, yeah. attorney. And yeah. when the first book came out, I asked Greg, I saw him, I saw him at a uh, called New York's Finest Football Club a Christmas party. And I said, do you think uh, you could get Bill Bratton? And he said, yeah, yeah, just here's his email. And, uh, you know, Greg set that up. And there's a lot of you know, a lot of people I talk about in the books, too, is I knew them because of the NYPD football team. And they just keep coming back, that thread. Uh, Mike Curtin, the 3256 Foundation, um, Mike, emergency service sergeant. 12-year Marine, fought in Desert Storm, uh, married to a Marine, three young children on 9-11. Um, and it's funny when you start to do these stories and you start doing some events. Now, I knew Mike. I'm very friendly with his cousin, Mike Finnegan, who runs the 3256 Foundation. And for a couple of you, I actually went to the first golf outing they had in 2002, I guess it was. Um, and when Bronx Justice came out, Mike Finnegan said, you know, could you donate a couple of books to, they have a big golf outing every year. Uh, could you donate a couple of books that we could use in the raffle? So I started bringing them and, and they would raffle them and say, hey, the author is here, you know, he'll sign them for you. And then when I started to write this book and it really started to fester in my brain around January, I, uh, I said, there's no way I could make a dime off this book telling these stories of people who sacrificed their lives to save, save or serve the city of New York. So I called Mike Finnegan and said, you know, how about we team up and all the money will go to the 3256 Foundation. So that's that's where it's going. Um, and it's uh, the 3256foundation.org if someone wants to go online and see what it's about. But it's it's basically a Marine, uh, USMC, NYPD. Uh, but I start to do the background on Mike. And I had, you know, I had the terrorist task force and I was uh, asked to join the uh, International Association Chiefs of Police, their Committee on Terrorism, back about 96. And uh, in 2002, Oklahoma City started, they called the Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism, because they had the bombing in 95, of course, that killed 180 people. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, a cowardly dog, blowing up a building with men, women, and little babies in it. Uh, so they flew me out there a couple of times to kind of 
sit on their panels as they set them up and advise them. And um, if anybody ever gets out to Oklahoma City, the memorial is just breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. Bob, you know what? Can I just interrupt you for one second? Sure. What really touched me in the book was when he was searching. I can't even say it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's what I was getting to. So Mike is one of the crew of cops and firemen who in 95, April of 95, when McVeigh bombs the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, we send a contingent right out, I guess FEMA trained or whatever, and mostly a lot of emergency service guys. And they're there the next day, if not earlier. And they're there still when the building is collapsing, there's still a lot of danger. And uh, Mike is digging and he sees buried in rubble, the blue pants with the red stripe. Very distinctive, it's the Marine dress pants. And he calls the rest of some guys over and says, we got a Marine here, we got to get him out. And they dig for five hours with the building still collapsing around them, you know, dangerous. And eventually they get the body of a Marine captain who was working the recruiting station in the building. So Mike gets five other Marines and they put the body on a Stokes basket and they cover it with the flag and they march out singing the Marine Corps hymn. Uh, the, the Randy, I can't think of his last name now, uh, the captain, his family came to New York years later to thank Mike. But when I to get back to the museum, you see they have all the chairs uh, that light up at night, they reflect in this pool, and then they have a museum. So when I'm there in 2002, I'm walking through the museum and I enter a room and there's an NYPD flag and a FDNY flag and they are honoring at Oklahoma City all of the NYPD, FDNY people who responded to Oklahoma City in 95 who then got killed at the Trade Center. So they have a locker with Mike Curtin's emergency service helmet in it, a picture of him, and, you know, like you said, it, it just, wow, it just kind of sends shivers down my spine. But that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, you know, I've been at all these uh, three, two, five, six golf outings, and usually people from emergency service will speak, and they, they will say, Mike wasn't coming out of that building if there was anybody still left in it. So there was no doubt. But that's yeah, I actually, you know, I actually met him uh, right before 9-11. Uh, I was taking a, the CIC course. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the presenters. for He, he presented the ESU section mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. So, But that was my totality of knowing who Mike Curtin was until, of course, I read about him after this tragedy occurred. Yeah, just, uh, you know. But, but there were so many of our people, you know, that I mentioned in the book. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is with everything that's going on now with the anti-police rhetoric and, and the stuff that people are putting up with our men and women in blue on the streets of New York, you know, the abuse that they have to take now. And I actually said at one point, I named a, a number of people that I knew who died on 9-11. And I said, if any of these heroes came back to life now and put the uniform on, and took to the streets of this city, they would be subject to the same scorn, abuse, and ridicule that their current brothers and sisters are. And it's just, you know, what happened in the 20 years? I, I, I don't know how we went from being the heroes to being people who are spit upon, you know? Yeah, it's 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 incredible. I think it's a, a sort of the, of the politics of the times, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. it's just sickening. Bob, I'm going to put up another um, picture. And again, I this is, as I said before, it's almost like, a PowerPoint for you, and I'm sorry they're out of order in no, the way okay. you sent me them. But how uh, about this this fella? That's John O'Neill. Uh, I knew John. He was uh, the uh, 
uh, assistant special agent in charge of the New York office. I met him when he was still down in Washington, D.C. In 96, I went to my first IACP uh, convention in Phoenix, Arizona, and I met John there. And John was in Washington, but he told me he was coming to New York soon. And he started, we, we gave a, a talk at a symposium on terrorism, and John was talking about Osama bin Laden. And I really had not heard of him, even though I had the terrorist task force since uh, 93, I guess I went to special investigations. John was talking about him in 96. He continued talking about him. He came to New York uh, in 97. Uh, we, we became pre pretty good friends. And I see him at a IACP, just a, the Committee on Terrorism Conference in Alexandria, Virginia in August of 2001. Now, I was retired. I was in the private sector then, but I was still on this committee. And John comes up, and he was one of these guys who give you like a, a back rub. How are you, Bobby boy? And he goes, listen, I'm going to be seeing you soon. I'm coming to New York. I pulled the pin. So he's leaving the FBI. So I said, so what do you got? I know you got a job in New York. He says, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. It's not, not a done deal yet. But when I come up, I'm going to give you a call. So on the night... Uh, the day before 9-11, on September 10th, I'm sitting in my office and I get a call from another FBI friend who says, hey, your buddy O'Neill's got a big job in New York. And I go, you know, I saw him last month. He told me, but he didn't tell me what it was. He said, he's the director of security at the World Trade Center. And my exact words were, well, he's a lucky freaking guy. <laughs> and he says, well, why do you say that? I go, well, they bombed it in 95. Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. So we have a conversation. I hang up. The next day, boom, 9-11. Now, a lot of people might not notice, but basically in Manhattan, where I was working, there was no communication, no phones, no cells. You know, uh, Internet was kind of out anyway. Um, so I was there until about 10 o'clock at night. The phones came back, and this other FBI guy who had called me the day before says, do you remember our conversation from yesterday? I said, I can't forget it. He goes, O'Neill's missing. Uh, and they found his body a couple of days later. And oh, just God. if people are looking for a, a, a really nice, and I shouldn't say a nice show, a good show, I just saw this series called The Looming Towers on Hulu. And it's basically about John. It's about a five-part series about things leading up to 9-11. And Jeff Daniels plays John O'Neill. And he should get an Emmy. He knocks it out of the park. And I spoke to one of my FBI friends, and I was telling him what a job Daniels does. And he said, I think he worked with John's son because John was a kind of a bond bond, hung out in the lanes, you know, uh, was you know, ran with the fast crowd. But there was a scene in the lanes where Jeff Daniels, as John, is talking to an FBI agent, and the FBI agent tells him something that surprises him. And John had this way of just kind of rearing back and going, whoa. You know, and he, <laughs> Jeff, Daniels, Jeff Daniels did that. And I went, holy crow, that is O'Neill to the T. But it's a pretty, I think, a pretty fair um, uh, discourse on, on what led to 9-11. But he, he was a good guy, John. You know, Bob, if I could just say something. One of the things that um, we noticed as first responders is after this happened, there were so many rumors as to who survived and who didn't survive. Most of them were inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we had heard rumors like the whole top echelon of the police department mm -hmm. is gone. You know, mm -hmm. there was all these rumors. And, you know, and we were down there. But, there, as you said, there was no communication because the biggest phone tower was on top of mm -hmm. the World Trade Center, and that was mm -hmm. knocked out. So 
you know, one of the first things I did, I think most people did was call home and tell your wife or your kids, mm -hmm. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm all right. Cause no one knew how, where you were or how you were doing that day. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, Terry Tobin, who I talk a lot about, and, and I hope we have some time to talk about it, but she, when she gets transported to Ellis Island, cause she's severely injured, a park ranger comes up to her and says, you know, knows she's a Luke is this Terry. Uh, and says, can I call anybody for you? But before you, you give me a number, I can't reach any 718 or 516 or 212 numbers, you know? So there was a lot of the area that he couldn't make phone calls to. But uh, she's a special, special. I mean, she just comes off as kind of the star of the book, if that's the proper way to say it. Incredible. And I don't know if you want to go into her story or... Yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's why we're here. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so... Terry is a lieutenant in uh, DCPI, public information on 9-11. As you can see now, uh, she's a chief. She actually is a three-star chief now. She just made chief in February of uh, interagency cooperation or something. Uh, so she's in the office, 1PP. She gets a report of a plane hitting the Trade Center. She goes over. She goes into detail about seeing these people jumping and how horrendous it is. It is. And, and it's funny because Pete Mook, who I also mentioned in the book, had told me about Terry and I called Terry and I knew Terry. Terry actually got me a job at Malloy College teaching when I, when I first retired. Um, Pete Mook had told me about it, that he had run into her after she was injured. So I called her and said, you know, can we talk about it? You know, and she said, yeah, give me, and there's Pete Mook, my man Pete. And that's Pete and Cardinal Lignan and Terry. That's St. Patty's Day 2002. It's the first time they saw each other since 9-11. Um, but Pete told me about Terry. So I called Terry and said, you know, can I do an interview with you? And she said, yeah, I'm a little busy today. Can you call me tomorrow around 10 o'clock? And I call her and she goes, Bob, I hate to tell you this, but I just got an emergency meeting. Um, so we'll have to set it up for another time. But I check your email because I emailed you my recollection of what I did that day. So I go, all right, I'll check it out, and then I'll get back to you. I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions. And I go on my email, and I read her first-person recollection of 9-11, and it just knocks me out. I read it again, and then I read it a third time because I can't believe what I'm reading. And then I emailed her and said, Terry, we don't have to talk. With your permission, I'll run this pretty much exactly as you said it because it's just unbelievable. She's at the bottom of the South Tower, as it comes down, she's right at the base of it. Her first instant, she hears rattling and rumbling and she thinks it sounds like an L train. And then she realizes there's no L trains there. And she looks up and the building's coming down and her car is parked near her. And her first instinct is let me run into the car, you know, to seek shelter. Luckily, she can't do that. When the building comes down, the force of that wind knocks her out of her shoes, propels her across West Street, so, I mean, you got three lanes in each direction. It's got to be 60 feet wide. She lands on the other side of West Street in front of the World Financial Center. It's pitch black. She's trapped in debris up to her waist. Uh, can't breathe because it's, it's so thick, the air. And, again, she had seen uh, Joe Dunn right before the buildings came down. And Joe Dunn was our great former first deputy commissioner. And right before the buildings came down, now both – both towers were hit. She sees the second plane hit. And Joe Dunn tells her, Terry, there's a report of a third plane. Why don't you grab a helmet from emergency service? So she gets the emergency service helmet, which for people who aren't in the department, that's a heavy-duty Kevlar bullet-resistant helmet. It's not the plastic riot helmet that we wear when we go out on things. 
she has that helmet on. She gets propelled across the street, knocked out of her shoes. She's trapped in debris. And she says she hears and feels, but more hears a thunk. And her helmet falls off. It's cracked in half. And she feels blood running down her neck. And she reaches up and she has a four-inch piece of concrete embedded in her skull. No doubt in anybody's mind, Bill and Mark, that she does not have the helmet on. She's beheaded, right? Uh, So, I mean, you talk about God having his hand through Joe Dunn or whatever. Um, She's trapped in debris. She can't breathe. She sees a fireman who's also trapped, but he's getting out. And he says, there's still stuff coming down. Stay down. If you can, pull your shirt up over your mouth and nose which she does and then she hears moaning and she reaches out and she feels a hand and she thinks it's a man's hand and she says all right mister you know i'm nypd we're going to get you out uh if you can pull your shirt up over your mouth do it and eventually she's able to free herself enough where she goes to pull on this hand and arm and finds she's holding a hand and an arm there's no oh, good it, right uh, she's able finally to extricate herself and her and the fireman go, and well, you were there. I don't know if you heard any of these, but all the people there told me about the fire department guys when they go down and they don't move for about a minute, they have this chirping alarm that goes off. So they hear chirping coming from under an ambulance, and it was a fireman who had crawled under an ambulance, and then when all the debris came down, he wasn't hurt, but he was trapped in there. So they dig him out, and then the North Tower comes down. She starts to run across the street. She's again propelled. She's hit in the back with something. She doesn't know what it is. And she goes down. Eventually, she makes her way into an apartment in Battery Park City. And she sees all the elevators are open on the ground floor. And she figures everybody evacuated. And then she hears something. And she goes to a stairway and opens the door. And everybody in this apartment is in the stairways. So some people have gym clothes on. Some people have suits that they're going to work. But they're all in the stairway. And she says, folks, we got to get out of here because this building could come down, too. She actually thought when she was trapped and she hears explosions, she says, now they're bombing us. I don't know who they are, but they're bombing us. Uh, And then she realizes later that it's the cars exploding, uh, the police and the fire trucks and all that. Their gas tanks exploding. So she decides she's going to get the people down to the river because she knows the river is clear, but she knows the other way is a mess. And she starts to bring them out of the apartment. And now it's going to that gray mist again, the gray uh, fog, more or less, of all this debris. And she sees two guys with Taru T-shirts. And she calls, Taru, come here, I need help. And it turns, it's Pete Moog and his partner. And she knows Pete. (laughs) She she says to Pete, Pete, we got to get these people down to the river. And Pete says, Terry, we got to get you down to the river. You got a piece of concrete in your head and you got a two foot piece of plate glass sticking out of your back. You look like a shark. And Terry's like, no, I'm okay. You know, help me get him down. And eventually they get her onto a van that's taking people down to the boats. Pete goes down and he says he sees about us. He says there's only a couple of boats running and there's hundreds of people waiting to get on them. But there's a lot of yachts parked there. So Pete says, I know a lot of rich people leave their keys in their yacht. So he looks into a 70-foot yacht, and he sees the keys on the little uh, buoy that will float if you drop the keys in. You know, it's like a lifesaver or something. And I won't say how, but Pete makes entry into the boat. 
and he gets the keys and a uh, harbor launch pulls up and there's a harbor guy getting off the boat that Pete knows and he throws him the keys and says, you got a new boat, Swabby. Here's your 70 foot yacht. And the guy puts it into service and they start going back and forth, bringing people either to Jersey or you know, Bob, Bob, I think that's called martial law. And I think, you're, law. I, I, think you're, think, <laughs> I don't think anybody would complain. And no, I, 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 I think you're all right story. stealing that boat on a day like that. You know, I think it's a great story on the cocktail circuit for whoever owned the boat. You know, my boat was, you know, Drafted into service on 9-11. Uh, but eventually they get... No, no, Bob, Bob, they spoke like this. It was so perturbing that they took, <laughs> they took my boat right from the dock without even asking me. Well, leave it out. They said, of all the boats, they chose mine. Because mine was better than... <laughs> That's right. Boat. Mine was the coolest boat. It was the it, best you know, boat. It shows you, again, cops thinking on their feet and thinking outside the box. You know, there's not enough boats, but there's four harbor guys on this launch. They all know how to drive a boat. Pete doesn't know how to drive one, so here, here's the keys, my friend. You got you got yourself a new boat. Anyway, they get Terry over to Ellis Island, where they set up a, a triage area, and they look at her and they wrap up her head in gauze. They're not going to touch the glass. They're not going to try to pull the concrete out. Eventually, they get her on an ambulance and goes to Jersey. She goes into a hospital in Jersey, and the doctor said, "We got good news and bad news." We're going to take you right into surgery. The bad news is we can't give you anesthesia because obviously you have a severe concussion. So they go up and they pull the uh, concrete out. They take the glass out. They put 80 stitches between her back and her head. And they go, oh, as a little bonus, you also have a severely broken ankle. We oh can't treat God. it. We can't cast it because it's already swollen and it's all cut up. Her brother, who's in NYPD, has gotten the phone call and he comes and picks her up. And he says, I'm going to take you to my house out in Long Island. My wife's a nurse. And she says, no, take me back to the Trade Center. Take me back to the Trade Center. I, she wants to do more to help. Wow. When she gets back, she says, I realize I can't even get close to it at this point. So then what does she say? Does she say, take me to your house? She says, no, take me back to my office. So she goes back to one police plaza up to the, I think it was the 13th floor, uh, DCPI. Yeah. And she goes in and starts working, starts answering the phones. And when she told me this story, I said, you treated this like you went out to lunch at the South Street Seaport for a half hour <laughs> and came back. Eventually, Tommy Fahey, who was the chief who was in charge of DCPI, comes in and blows a guess. What are you doing here? You order someone to take her to North Shore Hospital, and they take her there, and she's treated. Then she recuperates at, at her brother's house. But I've been telling people she probably made 150 decisions after that first tower came down, not one of them was what's good for Terry Tobin. It was all about helping other people. And That's amazing. Bob, so, Bob, we're going to take a, a very short break here. For, before we go on break, factual breakdown. Thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. And yes, Captain Timothy Stackpole from the FDNY was a hero. Uh, I mentioned just, him in the book, as a matter of fact. Yeah, well, his brother was a, uh, a detective also on the NYPD. I'm just going to – we're going to go to a quick commercial. Bob, if you have to go to the bathroom, I know you're you're elderly like, like <laughs> I me. Seeing, I, <laughs> I was going to say, but if you have – this is the time to do it. Uh, okay. Mark, Mark, you want to do the first one? Here we go. Hey, if you're planning a move down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you couldn't find a better a realtor, Carol Waters, realtor. Um, she's from the Bronx here. And she worked at the famous Fitzpatrick Bar there. Um, she married a, a cop who turned out to be a fireman, Rob Mayer. And they made their move down there. And now they're selling homes. Um, you'd be in great hands. You can trust them. 
So make sure if you're thinking about making that move down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, um, you can get in touch with Carol Waters Realty. The cell phone number is there, 914-261-6681. And her email is carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. Folks, if you're out there and uh, you're having a little bit too much to drink or you're up to no good sometimes, you may want to carry uh, Joe Murray's uh, phone number in your pocket. He's an attorney at law. He's a retired NYPD police officer. He's a frequent guest on the show. He's our legal expert. And um, trust me when I tell you, you couldn't, God forbid, if you ever get into trouble, you couldn't be in better hands. Uh, he'll definitely look out for you. He's a gentleman. Uh, so make sure that you uh, you take this down, jmurray-law.com. And the phone number there, uh, his cell phone number is 718-514-3855. I don't even have to look that up. I have that memorized just in case. <laughs> Michael O'Keefe is a retired NYPD first grade detective and the author of three novels, Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and Burnt to a Crisp. You can order his books on Amazon.com or his website, michaelokeefeauthor.com. Michael O'Keefe was the police officer who, in 1992, got in a gunfight with a drug dealer named Kiko Garcia. Luckily, Michael O'Keefe walked away from that. Kiko Garcia did not. And a lot of uh, Michael's um, books are somewhat autobiographical in that sense, shot to pieces, a reckoning in Brooklyn, and burnt to a crisp. I've read all three of them. They're fantastic uh, books. So, again... You can order them at Amazon.com or MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. Uh, Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. Uh, they can provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also uh, serves an important cause. It gives back to the community. 50% of the profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. And again, 50% of the profits go to the officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10, that's off the cuff 10. So just go on policecoffee.com and you can order your coffee and you know you're going to be doing a great service to uh, police members of the service all over the country. We're back. You know, folks, this is so unbelievable for us. Mark and I were both both first responders. And um, Bob Martin writing this book was so thankful that he did because this was one of the darkest days in New York City history. However, some good things came out of it, too. And, uh, Mark, you, you want to say a couple things, Mark? You haven't really said much. Well, I mean, <laughs> it was uh, the 10-year mark of my career. And uh, I wound up writing a show when I retired, uh, a, a solo show. And in my solo show, we it's just a journey through my 20 years, which um, – were more funny than anything else. But while I was having fun on the job, and then I remember I was working the Warren squad uh, that day. Um, that day changed the, like, the course of, of my career. I had another 10 years left, and it, it never really was quite the same after that, even though there was some fun moments after that. But um, it, definitely, uh, it definitely changed 
just the whole mentality and just it just changed everything. Hundred percent, Peter Pranzo, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, the great Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders. Thank you for the five dollar super chat. Prayers for Santos Valente in the issue truck seven street crime, and Lee Feeling FDNY Engine Company two thirty five and former NYPD and all all others lost on nine eleven. Uh, you know something we we. we we salute everyone from that day, all people that lost their lives, not just first responders, but especially first responders. But we salute everyone because civilians went to work that day doing the right thing, and then their their building they're in gets bombed. And, you know, we salute everyone. Jen Lo, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Uh, she says, thank you for all your service. You're all heroes in our eyes. Uh, hey, you know you something? Mentioned- oh. Go ahead, Mark. No, I was just going to say he mentioned the harbor units, and that um, was funny because we worked on 98th Street and 3rd Avenue, the Warren Squad, and the harbor met us there, and they took us around Manhattan, and they brought us to, I guess it would be um, wherever the closest point is to New York there. That was not... not um, Battery Park? No, where Frank Sinatra's from. What's that? Oh, I forget that. Hobo- Hobo- Hoboken. Hoboken. And we set up a triage there in one of the hospitals for um for all the people that were going to be injured and then nobody came mm-hmm. everybody was dead mm-hmm. you know I, I it's that's a thing my, my one of my friends was a doctor and he rushed down there and same thing there was no need for his services which is you know when you think about it it's so so heartbroken uh, uh, broken that 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 occurred you know well, you can remember, uh, I think it was St. Vincent's Hospital, they had pictures of all the doctors and nurses in front with the gurneys waiting, you know, and, and nobody came. And even uh, the story I told you with Terry Tobin, they probably would have admitted it to that hospital in Jersey, but they thought they were going to get 100 more people. So, you know, they let her go home uh, and, and she went back to work. If I could jump on to you mentioned Timothy Stackpole and Mike O'Keefe. And it's it's funny the connection there, which you probably don't know about, Bill, but I will fill you in. Uh, one of the uh, groups that I mention in the book, and I do mention 343 firemen, I do mention 37 Port Authority uh, police department members, including Captain Kathy Mazur, who was the one female from uh, Port Authority who died, and a guy named Fred Marone, who was their director of security, I believe was the title, who was up, there's Kathy, yep. She was the only female among the 37 Port Authority uh, police that died that day. And I don't know if you have Fred Marone's picture, but he was also a member of this IACP terrorism. Oh, that's, that's Lee, let me, let me hit that one while you got him up. Okay. Uh, Leroy Dixon. Uh, now, you mentioned Mike O'Keefe, who, who has his commercial in, uh, a great writer. And I met Mike. I was doing uh, some publicity, a, a cable TV show for Bronx Justice when it came out. And I'm in the green room, and, and this guy walks in, and he's got a mohawk. He's got 18-inch arms covered with tattoos. And he goes, are you a bomb man? And I was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> some, some biker I locked up sometime. And it's Mike O'Keefe. So we start talking. And he mentioned, and I knew about his trials and tribulations in the 3-4, uh, you know, and followed that and, and, and prayed that he would come out on top, and he did. Uh, but I mentioned to him that he had worked in the A3 squad. And I said, you know, I in Bronx Justice, I have a character that I named after a guy I worked with in TPF. I was in Tactical Patrol Force. I was in Street Crime. 
in tactical patrol, I worked with this gentleman, Leroy Dixon, and that was Bronx Justice, yeah. And I said to him, I'm trying to get word to him. Is he still in the A3? And Mike went, Bob, Leroy died. He's one of the post 9-11 victims. Uh, and I was surprised. I found out, I mean, we have over 300 NYPD have died now post 9-11, right? We lost 23. Uh, there's Jimmy Monaghan. I worked with him in street crime. He took more guns off the street in a month than most cops do in 20 years. And when I saw the picture, I didn't recognize it. Uh, Keith Ferrara, I did karate with. He could kick and knock your teeth out when you were holding a bag. And I actually helped get him into mounted. And he had a full head of black hair. And when I saw uh, he was uh, dead, they had broken court section. So he must have got too sick to ride the horses. Great kid, uh, young guy with the family. But these are all the, the post 9-11. All right, now uh, this is a happy story. Stevie McAllister was the captain of Taru, and he's there that day. And when the, the North Tower goes down, he's not there for the South Tower. He gets there for the North Tower, knocked off his feet, crawls around and finds an SUV. And he figures they have a pretty big wheel well. He goes into the wheel well, and all the debris is coming down. And his son had just been born, Stevie Jr. And he said, dear God, please let me live to see him grow up. And he gives me one of the lighter moments. I mean, it's hard to have a light moment in this book, but when it starts to ease up a little, he sees an amber light that he identifies it might be the back of an ambulance. And he gets over to it, and it is an ambulance. And he opens the back door, and it's pristine. There's no dust in it. And he goes in, and his father had died a couple of weeks before, a couple of months before, and he had been on oxygen. So Stevie knew how to uh, you know, hook up the oxygen bottles, and he starts breathing oxygen. And he sees some bottles of saline, you know, salt water. And he grabs one, pours it on his head, and he grabs one and chugs it down. And he grabs another one and chugs it down. And a door opens up, and a lieutenant he knows comes in, and Stevie hands him a, a saline bottle and says, hey, drink this. And the guy looks at the bottle and says, do you think it's safe to drink? And Stevie says, hey, buddy, you just swallowed two whole buildings. I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about the damn water. I worry about the salt water, you know, depleting your, your blood or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, he he wanted one of those like uh, sports drinks, like a Gatorade yeah, or something. Gatorade you know? or something you know? <laughs> uh, but it was just, as I said, it's it's a, a very tough subject to find anything to live. But when Stevie told me that, he's another guy from the NYPD football team. To you know, to keep hitting on that. And I should mention, uh, we have the 50th anniversary of the NYPD football team coming up. Joe Lockman and Pudgy Walsh from the fire department. Joe was a cop who started it. Uh, Dominic Lorendi, my buddy, is, is really organizing the 50th anniversary. Bobby Nicosia, now, now Pete Moog, when he told me his story, uh, asked me, could I get in a word about two people from Taru who died post 9-11? That's Bobby Nicosia. He was a chief in the Wantour Fire Department, volunteer fire department. Had all sorts of uh, rescue training and emergency response training, and they said he was just dynamite on the days and weeks. They were down here for six months, basically, Taru. Uh, but he succumbed to post 9-11, one of the 300. And it's it's strange. Um, you know, Bob, can I just stop you for one second? For, for folks that don't realize uh, how long members of the NYPD, and I also have to mention, unheralded, un, um, no one knew about them, but the steel workers. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were unbelievable. These were the guys that with torches and stuff cut big girders of steel, so that it could be removed, so they could do the recovery and actually, you know, uh, well, it was the recovery? It really wasn't a rescue operation after a while. But these guys were heroes, and I've seen them at Mount Sinai when I go for my treatment once a year. Some of these guys were yellow, 
you know, mm-hmm. they're re- they're real sick now. Oh yeah, real sick. They had that guy of- you see on TV, John Feel. He started the Feel Good Foundation, where yeah, he's making sure they get taken care of. No, but they were heroes. Friend of mine, Tommy. One hundred percent. You know, uh, oh, Louis Alvarez. Uh, Louis Alvarez. Louis Alvarez. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from Astoria. That's where I grew up. I remember him growing up. Uh, we played a lot of football against each other, softball, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that John Stewart was with, testifying. Yeah. And, and God bless John. You, you Stewart. know, you, you know something, Bob. That's what's amazing to me is that you would think that politicians would be shamed, and they were shamed. They were shamed into doing the right thing. Do you it, get James. these. You get the the Schumers. You get the scumbag Mitch O'Connell. You know, who's more concerned with the budget than he is about saving guys that mm-hmm. were selfless, just ran mm-hmm. into these buildings and guys that work for six months and now have cancers mm-hmm. that they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And it took a celebrity, John Stewart, to go down there and shame them. Thank God he did. Oh, I God take my was- hat off to him. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what, you know, got more, got billions more dollars for the 9 11 people. No, or else they would have just, you know, there's plenty of money for everything else, but mm-hmm. that's the hell with these guys. You know, that's that was their philosophy. Well, Louis was there, and I believe he died about three days later, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think you could see he was sick as could be when he was there. And yeah. I didn't know him, uh, Mark. You, you could probably attest to this. People tell me he was a weightlifter. He was a yeah. big, bulky guy. And then a couple of people sent me pictures because I had only seen him in this, you know, in his last days, and it was 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 so sad. But yeah, for John Stewart. Also, uh, you mentioned Timothy Stackpole. Now, I do mention the 343 firemen, and now Mike O'Keefe, again, uh, we start talking, and I go, where'd you go to high school? And he says, St. Francis Prep. I go, oh, there we go, another terrier. Uh, (laughs) He went to Queens. I went when it was still in Brooklyn, when it was the real school, when we were a football powerhouse, Um, but we both played for Vince O'Connor, who coached there for 62 years, and I get a newsletter from St. Francis Prep, Shortly after 9-11, they lost 19 people, alumni from the high school, including, which I didn't know, Father Michael Judge, the very yes. famous. Yep, yep. And I thought they famous. just made him an honorary, but he actually went to St. Francis Prep his freshman year before he went into the seminary. But Timothy Stackpole, I mentioned everybody in the book, and it is 14 of the 19 are FDNY. And I go, I don't know you know, what the record is for a high school. Now, that was a small high school when I went there. Now it's the largest uh, non-diocesan Catholic school in the country. And the building they're in now, right off the LIE and uh, Francis Lewis, is 10 times the school, you know, as big as the school I went to. But it just grabbed me. So I had to include them. But but Timothy Stackpole uh, was mentioned. And he played football as a prep, too. For, well, for- Ange- Angela Ang, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. Fidelis Ed Mortem. For you guys that didn't study your Latin, that's faithful until death. And that's one of the uh, mottos of uh, of the NYPD Honor Legion. Isn't that correct? That's Adela correct. said mortem. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, – so thank you, Angie Yang. You know, I have to – Bob, we we have about like 13, anywhere f- about 15 minutes left. I got to go to this iconic picture here. Okay. Uh, you want to talk about that? All right. Moira Smith, who most people have heard about. Uh, she was the, you know, we lost 23 NYPD. She was the one female NYPD uh, officer who died that day. Uh, thank you to the Daily News and Corey Sipkin for giving me permission to use that photo. Um, and that's her leading a broker, a bloody broker out of the South Tower. 
Now, did she stay outside and sit with him, put him in there? No, she went back in because that's the way she was. And a lot of people there say that she's probably saved hundreds of lives that day. She was just very calm, telling people to get out, you know, exit to your left. Uh, and again, you, you start to do these and, and it's like uh, an onion. You peel back the skin. So I, I had heard about her. I, I knew that she was our one female. She was actually in the 13th precinct and she saw the plane strike from the 13th. She reported it on the air and then she went down there, you know, um, didn't have to go back into the building probably, but she did and died. And she left behind a little, her husband, Jim, who you said you knew, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is, uh, thank you for this one. This is her daughter, Patricia, who was two years old when she died and her husband, uh, Moira's husband, Jim, uh, getting the Medal of Honor at Carnegie Hall from Rudy Giuliani. And if I could, a friend of mine, Peggy Harrington, wrote a poem. And it's funny. I see her about two weeks ago, and I mentioned that I wrote the book, and I mentioned some people who are in it. Now, she's a civilian, you know, a friend of mine, her and her husband, Jim, friend of my wife and I. And we go to dinner, and I mention the book, and I mention Moira. And she, like, does a double take. She goes, the girl in the red velvet dress. And she goes, oh, my God, it just grabbed me so much. I wrote a poem about it. So with your permission... Again, Absolutely. You don't need talking, our permission. Go ahead. <laughs> we're talking about December of 2001. The Medal of Honor was awarded posthumously to Moira Smith. Uh, the medal was presented to her husband, Jim, also with the NYPD, and Patricia, their two-year-old daughter at Carnegie Hall. And she writes this poem. Your father holds your hand as you stride across the stage in the glare of footlights, a little finger in your mouth, your head down, eyes looking away, one shiny black shoe is frozen midair near the hem of your skirt. A wide green ribbon with a gold star, too big for you, hangs almost to the hem, hem of your red satin dress. The brim of your father's hat hides his face as he looks down at you. He worries that you're going to cry, frightened by the sound of applause. You feel the tightening of the grip of his white-gloved hand. Your father looks strong in his uniform, just as your mother did. You can't find her. Wow. No matter, no matter where you look. You sobbed as your father arranged your hair this morning, fixing in place the barrette that now gleams in the photographer's flesh. And that's Peggy Harrington, a friend of mine. And you know what it makes me think of, Mark and Bill, is so we knew about Moira. We might have been familiar with that picture. Her two-year-old daughter who's now 22 is in the university of alabama studying to be a athletic trainer wow. but how many daughters are out there you know three thousand people died that day how many others don't have a father don't have a mother that have similar stories that we don't know and it seems to me again that the public has kind of put everybody those three thousand people it's in the rearview mirror now you know, and and even now the, the families of the 9-11 victims are demanding that President Biden release all the information we have on what the Saudi Arabians uh, government, what their role was in 9-11. Why is it a secret? Why are we keeping that from people who lost people? And they basically said if he doesn't release it, they don't want him coming to 9-11. And I don't know why you would not. You know, I'm sure there's political reasons and I don't know if it's oil or whatever, but... Come on, if they had something to play, if they didn't, 
put it out there if they did put it out there unbelievable aaron rodriguez thank you so much for the 999 super chat bill ryan from ryan investigative group thank you so much for the five uh, billy ryan chat. an old uh, special frauds detective that's right a great guy great you know something you know bob you're so good at um telling these stories um i we all get like choked up <laughs> there you go no that one got me just when i hit that about her holding her father's hand and she's looking for her mother and can't find her and she's never going to find her you know uh you know I, mean, no, I used to work i used to work at pete's tavern and years ago buster smith is a former police nypd and he is um the uncle to james smith okay uh, and buster now is at the ripe old age of 101 he's still alive <laughs> good for which him. is uh, unbelievable you know and so buster if you're listening i just wanted to and do a james, shout out to james you father bill no he's uh he's the uncle of james smith okay so uh, hey uh if you don't mind if i tell this story um just watching you guys break down i remember after it happened we were doing um a lot of the family center uh, where people would come in and report missing persons and we would take the missing person report and uh we would uh, vouch for the dna whatever they brought into us and um you know we're just working every single day and uh I, I never cried and it was bothering me i just like I mean, what the hell is the matter with me you know what i'm saying and then uh came time for the mayor um uh, giuliani met with von essen at the marriott and all the missing firefighters the two of them addressed their families and then um we were sitting next door and that's when they were going to bring whatever you could get from a locker uh the f the, the fdmy guys so uh, one guy brought a, a pillowcase and uh you know i opened it up and he goes there's 19 of my my brothers in there mm. he goes anything else you need and they were all like in these big freezer bags and it was a, a hairbrush maybe an underwear whatever whatever was in their locker that they thought they could get dna off of, um was in these black with these bags and you know it had all their pedigree information on on the label there and i was like uh that was that was <laughs> That's when it, that's when they finally uh, it all settled in right there. Yeah, well, it's good it's good that you finally let it out because I don't think you could be human and go through that. You know, I was speaking to a good friend of mine, Kenny Bowen Jr., who was an emergency service sergeant who worked with Mike Curtin, uh, and he was saying that he lost three. They were truck two up in the two six, and God forgive me, I can't remember the other two name. Uh, and one of them was uh, John, whose whose brother was a uh, a fireman. This one father lost two a fireman, uh, but he said he just felt like he couldn't do enough when he was there. You know, uh, just some of the name that was uh, John Russo, also one of the Taru guys who died post nine eleven. And can you go back to that first one, Phil, that you had before that? Oh, that's Jerry Ahern, uh, another and I hate to keep coming back NYPD football guy, uh, police fire family. Um, his uncle, I believe it was Billy Ahern, great football player for the fire department team. Uh, I actually worked, I was assigned before the merger. I worked with housing for about three months and I worked with Billy's uncle, Harry Ahern, who was a great detective in housing. And that turned out to be one of the best deals I ever did. I didn't want to go. It was the exchange program. 
I was going to be there. I said, was it like a week or two? They said, no, three months ago. I don't want to go to housing. And they treated, <laughs> they treated me like gold. And I saw that they were as top notch as anybody we had. And it really paid off later because basically the book Bronx Justice, what it's based on is a natural case that we worked in the Bronx where these drug dealers and some wise guys from upstate got together and they were killing people left and right. And a lot of the bodies were t getting dumped in the housing projects in the Bronx, the Patterson projects and the Butler houses. So we had a task force of uh, 4-2 squad, Bronx homicide and housing detectives. And the first day I walk in, one of the, one of my guys from the Bronx homicide says, uh, Cap, let me introduce you to some of the housing guys. And they all go, hey, Lieutenant Martin, oh, you made a captain. You know, I had worked with <laughs> So it really opened up some doors and, and they were a great bunch. But I don't want anybody to feel, you know, left off that I, I do mention the, the 343 fire department people. Uh, as again, I, I mentioned. Oh, oh, wait, was that the gentleman you were referring to before? That's Pete Moog. Oh, that's Pete Moog. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, we, that's, did, we didn't mention oh, that. I wanted to get, yeah, thank you for that one, Bill. Uh, you know, 3,000 people died that day, 23 NYPD. This is police officer John Perry from the 4-0 precinct. And of all the people who died that day, his death just affects me more than anybody's. He was at one police plaza retiring that day. Wow. Uh, he spoke seven languages. He was a lawyer and he was retiring with 15 to open an immigration law practice. And the planes hit and he decides he's got to go to the towers. And I said of all of them, I don't know if I was at one PP that day putting my papers in, I think I might've said there's 36,000 people, you know, from NYPD. I don't know if I would have went, but he went and, and I ended up doing a short story based upon him a short story of course is fiction called the last job and that's in the book uh and that I'm, I'm in a group called the public safety writers association and in 2017 they have a writing competition uh on short stories and i sent two in one was the last job and one was another one uh, called uh, the keys to understanding and in that one i had a female protagonist cop a rookie cop in the 6'9", working with an old hair bag with a handlebar mustache who weighs 300 pounds, who was based upon <laughs> a guy I worked with. And I was a little hesitant to put the keys into the book because it wasn't 9-11 related. But I did have a female hero cop, and um, I did dedicate it to Moira Smith, to Kathy Mazur, and to Terry Tobin, who lived. And I'm getting so much feedback on people love that story. So, but uh, John Perry, special, special. John, uh, John was an actor as well. I, I worked yeah, with him. He, he did like some. Uh, uh, I worked with him or... on a TV show. Okay. Yeah. But Years I don't ago. know. I mean, would you, if you were retiring that day, you think you would have ran over? I didn't want to go when I was on the job. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, I don't know. I you mean, know, but, you know, Bob, I just wanted to also mention this flyer because I put this flyer out to sort of uh, to promote the show. And I didn't mean to imply that everyone on this flyer lost their life. I just put no. the pictures that you sent me and they were uh, inside well, your mean, books. It's pretty easy. The ones who lived were Pete Moog, who's on the bottom row, uh, second from the left. Uh, Terry Tobin, of course, the chief, and the gentleman on the top with the uniform hat is uh, Stevie McAllister. They're the three who lived. Everybody else is, is no longer with us, you know. Right. Hey, hey, would you mind repeating the name of the um, that film? Uh, was it O'Neill's uh, film? Uh, the Looming Towers. 
And it was on who it's still, I believe, on on Hulu. But Jeff Daniels just does. I mean, if you know somebody and then you see somebody portraying them 20 years later and you go, man, he just he's got all the facial expressions, the hand gestures. He really did a great job on it. And it's a pretty fair uh, analysis of, of 9-11. And I won't go into um, the politics of it, but it's pretty fair. It's unbelievable. Folks, um, this is Police Off the Cuff After Hours. If you're not subscribed to us on YouTube, please do so. Give us a thumbs up. Ring the bell. I'm not going to uh, sell our Patreon tonight. It's just uh, too much of a solemn um, solemn show. Um, tomorrow night, believe it or not, I, I, I'm doing round two of this. Uh, and I just thought it was a sort of a, a good thing to do. I want to be with the guys that I was with 20 years ago uh, that I responded down there with. So I'm doing a show with um, Detective Billy Hicks, Detective James Zarakis, and mm -hmm. Detective... Zedekiah Jennings, all from the two three squad, and we're going to tell our story of responding down there, and just not to to put ourselves out there, but to 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 just sort of memorialize this day, and because uh, it it is a day that um, will live will live in infamy in New York City history, and I I don't ever want to forget about it. I don't agree with the politicians that try to pull back on the celebrations for this, not even celebrations. The memorializing this day, and uh, again, I think this year they just they're limiting the the um, celebration or the the memorializing just to the family members, and I don't think that's right. I think all first responders should be allowed to go down there. Apparently, they're not doing it. I don't know if they're using COVID as an excuse like they did last year. They didn't even want to do the lights last year, mm -hmm. and the the uh, SBA and some of the other unions went crazy and they relented. Even the the, the governor who just stepped down, he was against it too, you know? So, uh, you know, without getting political, you know, uh, I think that it, it's an important thing to keep honoring the people, the 3000 people that lost their lives that day. Mark, uh, final words. I just want to thank Bob. That was great having you. Uh, thank you, Mark. I enjoyed the stories. Thank you so much. If I could just jump on what you said, Bill. So you think, People are saying, I don't want Terry Tobin at this memorial this year. Uh, and she says she goes every year right after she calls Joe Dunn and says, thank you for telling him to put the helmet on. So maybe they should rethink that policy. You know, I think so, too. I think politicians are so misguided and they just they have no clue. They should have been running into those buildings like the 23 NYPD officers and the 36 Port Authority and the 334 firemen that, that lost their life. And I'm sure 343. Yeah. I'm sure that they would uh, change their whole act. I yeah. want to put up on the screen this is how you can donate the 3256 Foundation. Uh, 3256foundation.org. You'll pull up the website. You can donate right on that website. If you want to order Bob's book, is it's available on Amazon, Bob? Yes, sir. So Amazon.com, it's called 9-11 Remembered 20 Years Later. He also has another book out that uh, it's called Bronx Justice, an NYPD novel, and uh, he's a great writer. And, um, Bob, I, I just I can't say enough. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I just want to give a shout-out to Chief Louis Anamon, who actually uh, made me aware of you. Yeah, and, uh, Louis, uh, 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 I mean – you wish he was back in the department now, but he did. He hooked me up with, with you guys. 
Uh, and matter of fact, he had sent me an email right after he read the book and he said, I guess this is a labor of love. And I said, you know, Chief, Bronx Justice is a book I wanted to write. 9-11 Remembered is a book I had to write. And he's a great man. Yeah, I mean, I would have never known about you had he not told me. He goes, give yeah, this well, guy a call. Right? I keep a low profile. You know, I do no social media. I have no Facebook or any of that. I, I told you, I just got my first smartphone, and I can't figure out how to work it. I'm FaceTiming people <laughs> when I think I'm calling them, you know. <laughs> you, 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 need, you need like a 15-year-old to give I you have tutorials. a 15-year-old granddaughter, and she's showing oh, okay. me the ropes, you know. But, <laughs> she, like, she, you know she, and even you remember <laughs> when I first contacted you, and you asked me about doing it, I said, I don't know about this, you know, going That's on. right. You turned me down first. I had to beg. Yeah. And if people said no you, you know you want to push this book you want what happened last year too is the the three two five six big fundraiser is a huge golf outing they have every uh, july usually out in riverhead and they got canceled last year because of covid so we really wanted to get some bucks into their corpus so uh you know anybody any anything we make on the book goes right to them that's fantastic so tomorrow night uh, i'm doing another show on 9 11 and wednesday night we have the great Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, with retired NYPD first-grade detective Tommy Dades, an organized crime expert, and, of course, the great from straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. So it should be a great show Wednesday night. Bob, I don't know what to say, man. I can't thank you enough. It was so great to meet you. You know how many people I've just met by a stream yard? Never met them in person. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to meet you in person one day, though. You know, We'll have a drink together. I, I would love that. I look forward to it. And bring Mark with you, even though he's not as good looking as you. you can bring him <laughs> but Mark, Mark drinks a lot, though. I don't know if I can afford the bar bill. <laughs> well, he's got to pony up his own money, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll use the police off the cuff money. That's right. We'll use the there police off the cuff funds. That's right. So, there folks, thank you so much uh, for watching us tonight. God bless Bob Martin. God bless all the people that lost their lives on 9 11. God bless all their family members. And from Bill Cannon and Mark DeMeo from Police Off the Cuff After Hours. Good night, everyone, and thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot, Bill.